In addition to MCAST, a subscription to eMedHome.com includes over 1,000 video lectures from the best EM conferences, with more added all the time. View on any device whenever and wherever you want. All this and so much more, including hundreds of CME credits each year for the low cost of only $99. eMedHome.com. For 20 years, the homepage of emergency medicine. Subscribe now. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the November 2023 issue of EMED Homes EMCast. This is Amal Matu from University of Maryland. And once again, welcome back. It's unbelievable that the year is very soon coming to a close. I hope everyone has had a much better 2023 than 2022, certainly, which is better than 21 and 20. But I hope you've had a great year wherever you are. I know here in Maryland is starting to turn just a little bit cold and I uh, hope everyone is warm and happy. Whether you're in the northern or the southern hemisphere, especially with the holiday season approaching. Before we get into this month's series of podcasts, I want to remind everybody about two upcoming really great courses in just the next couple of weeks. So next week is our annual University of Maryland, the Crashing Patient Risk Management and Resuscitation Conference. I know I've been talking about it quite a bit. It is going to be November 8th and November 9th. We've got about 12 and a half, 13 hours worth of CME with some really high-risk topics. Each lecture is going to be 18 minutes. There's more than 30 different topics we're going to be addressing. And you can check it out at www.thecrashingpatient.com. And yes, if you cannot be there real time, you will have access to all of the videos from those lectures. We'll make those available to everybody who registers. And then the following week is our emergency medicine electrocardiography boot camp. It's called the EMCC or Emergency Medicine Cardiology course. And the course over the past 12 versions of this course has really transitioned into pretty much 100% focus on intermediate and advanced electrocardiography. Everything from ischemia to arrhythmias, there's some electrolyte stuff in there, about 16 hours of really high yield and practical information that focuses on electrocardiography Day one is going to be Monday, November 13th, and then day two is going to be Thursday, November 16th. We've split it up this time into two separate days. It used to be back-to-back days, but now we figured, let's see what happens if we split it up by a few days and give people a rest between the two days. And just like with the crashing patient, anyone who registers will get video access of all of the lectures for, I don't know, two weeks or four weeks, something like that. I'm not sure what they decided, but you will get video access as well. You can check out the website, www.emcardio.com, E-M-C-A-R-D-I-O.com, emcardio.com. Check out the website. All right, folks, let's jump in to the EM cast for this month. We're going to start things off by talking about acute coronary syndrome in the elderly. We haven't addressed that topic in quite some time, but there's a very nice article that was published in the cardiology literature. We're going to focus on what's most relevant for you to know in emergency medicine about how to manage elderly patients that are presenting with acute coronary syndrome. Then we're going to talk about some trauma. We're going to talk specifically about crush injuries and the complications associated with crush injuries, what you need to know when those patients do finally arrive in the emergency department after they have been extricated. Third topic we're going to address is bread and butter hypertension in the emergency department, but there's a little bit of a twist. There's some people out there that are suggesting that we get rid of the term 
not just hypertensive urgency, but even hypertensive emergency. So it's kind of an interesting take on this, but we'll talk about hypertensive emergencies, hypertensive crises, whatever you want to call this. And then we're going to finish things up by talking about something that probably none of you out there ever have to deal with, and that is boarding of psychiatric patients in the emergency department. I know it's an esoteric topic because hardly anybody out there who's listening has to deal with this, right? Well, of course, I'm being sarcastic. This is something that we all have to deal with, even more so after COVID. COVID has resulted in an increase in mental health emergencies and crises. And COVID has also resulted probably in more boarding around the world than we faced. It was a big problem even before COVID, but we face it even more now. And some of the patients that really kind of get left out in the cold, so to speak, with boarding are patients with psychiatric conditions. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. With that as a little intro, thanks for joining us for November's issue. Let's go ahead and jump in. All right, well, let's go ahead and get started with our first topic. And I'm looking forward to a a really great discussion of our next topic because it's definitely something that I'm interested in. This is an article called Management of Acute Coronary Syndrome in the Older Adult Population, a Scientific Statement from the American Heart Association. And no surprise, this was published in Circulation, published actually back in January of 2023. And we're finally getting around to this. Whenever Circulation publishes these AHA scientific statements, it always catches my interest because these are articles, when they're relevant to EM, of course, these are articles that oftentimes show up on board exams and the LLSA and and other things like that. Well, joining me to help get us through this article is Dr. Lloyd Tannenbaum. Lloyd's been on the EMCast, one of our newcomers, but he's been making a big splash with his interest in emergency cardiology, and he's done some really great reviews over the past handful of months. And he's going to help us get through this relatively long paper. You know, when I first saw this paper, I didn't realize how long it is, but it's actually about 31 pages or so. And a lot of this is focused on some of the social issues in the elderly and some of the inpatient and long-term outpatient stuff, which we're not going to get into that. So we're going to really focus more on the emergent stuff. So first of all, Lloyd, welcome back to EMCast. It's great to have you back. Hey, Amal, thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to be here with you. Well, let's go ahead and jump right in. Uh, Let's start with something simple, all right? Why in the world do we need to have an article on this topic? What's special about older patients with regards to acute coronary syndrome? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Uh, to be honest, I kind of wanted the same thing uh, when we started talking about this article. But if we look at the numbers, you know, there's approximately 720,000 Americans who experience some kind of either acute myocardial infarction or coronary artery disease uh, related death every year. Uh, the older population, so that's age 75 uh, and older, are disproportionately affected. They account for about 30 to 40 percent of all hospitalized patients with ACS. And the majority of patients who suffer from an ACS-related death fall into the segment of the population too. These patients are also more medically complex. They have at least 75 years of calcium buildup in their vessels, and they have old, fragile, tortuous coronary arteries that would likely be pretty hard to stent if you know if you were the interventionalist on call. In addition to coronary artery disease, they also have a host of other medical problems that can uh, you know kind of trip you up when you're taking a history on them. And they take a giant list of medications, and they also don't heal as well as our younger patients. So these are going to be complex patients with a lot going on. And you know the article goes in depth into some of the pathophysiology about cardiovascular aging. You know, as an ER doctor, I had some flashbacks to medical school when reading these paragraphs, and kind of had some of those like oh no moments. I definitely forgot about them. 
I'm just going to break it down and keep it simple. I'm not going to jump into the weeds too far. So think of it like this. As we get older, our vessels get stiffer and less elastic. Uh, this will cause hypertension, which should make sense, right? Stiff vessels mean that the heart has to pump harder on each beat to supply the body with oxygenated blood. And remember, if the heart has to work harder, it's going to hypertrophy because it needs more muscle to pump harder. So you have this double-edged sword of the heart having to pump hard against aging infrastructure, but also having to supply itself. So as the uh, it hypertrophies to supply the body, it's also increasing its own oxygen demand. And then if we take it one step further, stiff vessels also imply a widened pulse pressure. So you'll have a high systolic number, but a low diastolic number. So the heart's working super hard to get all of the blood to the body that's oxygenated. It's fighting against that aging system. And then the diastolic pressure is low. Remember that the coronaries perfuse uh, during diastole. So you're not getting enough oxygen to the heart. So it wouldn't take very much to kind of tip the scales and end up in some sort of, uh, you know, ACS state in a supply demand mismatch where they're having an NSTEMI or they're having some kind of issue just because they can't supply their heart with enough blood. And if we take it, you know, into the weeds just for a second, you're probably thinking, well, why doesn't the heart just make more blood vessels? Why can't they revascularize, remodel, remap something, get themselves some more blood? Well, as we get older, the body's less good at that, right? The coronary epithelium is less elastic. It's less able to properly make new blood vessels. So it's not able to supply itself as well as it would like to. And then again, that helps to put us into the supply demand mismatch, which even a little bit of exertion can tip us into that NSTEMI te territory. I, I have to tell you, I had some flashbacks, really bad flashbacks. Uh, I guess people don't usually talk about good flashbacks. <laughs> so these were <laughs> yeah. bad flashbacks also to med school. I, I really have never liked pathophysiology. And that's one of the reasons why I like emergency medicine, because you don't necessarily need to know why certain things are happening. You just need to know what to do. Um, but that was a really, really nice and straightforward review of some of the pathophys here, kind of at my level. So I appreciate that. Yeah, and just I'm, wait till you get to the kidney. <laughs> oh, no. And I'm, I'm sure the people that are driving their car listening to this also will appreciate that. Well, uh, unfortunately, we do need to delve a little bit deeper into pathophys because the authors did have a couple of special sections just to talk about renal aging, which is a term I don't think I've really heard about before, but the pathophys with regards to the renal system is important. Can you can you try to make this simple for the rest of us? What exactly does this renal aging pathophys stuff have to do with? Yeah, absolutely. So if you're driving along, please do not crash your car when we talk about kidney transporters. Uh, I promise we'll make it fun and quick. So if we hit the kidney, the big takeaway here is that aging kidneys really aren't as good at their jobs as when they were, you know, young, little excited kidneys. Think of all the work the kidney has to do to keep the blood in balance. All those little transporters are now old, tired transporters. They're susceptible to tubular dysfunction. You see a decrease in sodium resorption, potassium excretion, and urine concentration. If the kidney is not able to regulate the urine properly, this can lead to an AKI. And there are lots of medications swirling around in an older person's body, many of which are not so nice to the kidney, and that'll compound the problem if the patient gets dehydrated. So you can get an accident, you can accidentally become toxic on some of these meds when the kidney stops working properly. If we take it one step forward, there's this thing called cardiorenal syndrome that can develop. Often sounds like more of like an ICU problem, but just keep in the back of your head in the ER, the heart and the kidneys are linked. Um, if you take a hit to one, you'll likely take a hit to the other. So if we think of this clinically, you look at uh, ACS resulting in cardiogenic shock can lead to an AKI or look at acute heart failure causing an AKI. But remember, it doesn't always have to be the heart affecting the kidneys. It can also go the other way around. So you can get left ventricular hypertrophy and heart failure from CKD associated cardiomyopathy, or you can get volume overload from renal dysfunction leading to acute heart failure. 
you know, Amal, I feel like we could do a whole episode on cardio renal failure or cardio renal syndrome. It's, it's fascinating and a pretty deadly phenomenon, but let's just keep it simple for now. The heart and the kidney are linked. And if you take a hit to one, expect the other to be unhappy with you. Nice summary. Thanks, Lloyd. And, uh, I, you know, those of us that are interested in emergency cardiology, I think over the years have really come to realize how important the kidneys are to cardiovascular health as well. It's all, all interlinked. So anyway, let, let's go beyond the pathophys a little bit and talk a little bit about elderly patients in general. The authors also talked about something that they refer to as geriatric syndromes. And this is a little bit more global than just emergency cardiology, but I, I think it's still really important to talk about this and understand how this relates to elderly patients with acute coronary syndrome. What, what are these geriatric syndromes that they're referring to? Sure. So there are six syndromes that they describe uh, in this paper. It's multimorbidity, frailty, cognitive decline, delirium, polypharmacy, disability, and sensory loss. And we're going to run through each one of them briefly. Uh, let's start with multimorbidity. So multimorbidity just means that there are two or more conditions that are active simultaneously. You know, these patients can present with a very confusing picture because they have so many active problems going on. I'm sure we can all picture that admission where we've called the hospitalist to tell them that, you know, we're not 100% sure what's going on, but the patient at least has an AKI, a bump troponin, some elevated LFTs, and a white count of 22. So you're not 100% sure what's going on, but uh, they definitely need admission. Like that's your multimorbidity right there. Everything's kind of clouding the picture a little bit. Frailty means that these patients are in a state of vulnerability due to diminished physiologic reserves across multiple organ systems. So remember, ICUs and bed rests can exacerbate fragility uh, and cause functional decline. You know, interestingly, exercise and nutrition can mitigate frailty, but unfortunately, patients don't get that enough in a hospital. It's hard enough to just, you know, given our patient load, hit the basics, let alone get the patients up, exercising, moving. You don't want them to fall. It's it's an unfortunate kind of phenomenon we find ourselves in, but if you're able to get the patient even up and moving a little bit, you can mitigate that frailty. Cognitive decline. So there's two different uh, types of cognitive decline to know about. There's kind of that mild cognitive impairment, which is just decreased cognitive function without loss of executive function. And then there's dementia, which is severe memory loss and loss of executive function. And this will interfere with daily life and leads to a loss of functional independence. These may be the patients coming in from like an Alzheimer's home, for example. The, the latter of the two, the ones with, you know, the extreme dementia, these are going to be very difficult to get a proper history from. Uh, and just remember, you know, it's not their fault. They're not doing this on purpose. They, they're just not functioning, uh, you know, at their baseline. Delirium is the disturbance in cognition, uh, attention and consciousness. You can be agitated or quiet and withdrawn. And, you know, I'm, I have two grandmothers. Uh, both of them have dementia. Uh, and when they end up in the hospital, uh, they're kind of, you know, one is a picture of this kind of calm, quiet, withdrawn person uh, who can easily get overlooked. She'll never complain about everything. If you ask her how everything is, she's fine. It doesn't matter. You know, if her leg was falling off, she would tell you everything's fine. She is your, your kind of calm, quiet, demented, uh, delirious patient. Whereas my other grandmother, she is the picture of agitated. Like she gives the nurses hell. She's a small little old lady. She punches hard if she gets upset. She's the one where the nurses are going to be, you know, running in circles trying to get this lady to calm down. Um, that's kind of how I picture these two different types of delirium. They are, uh, they can be a little uppity at times, but you just got to take care of them carefully. And, you know, it'll surprise you how much you can learn from them. Right. Uh, 
polypharmacy. So this one, this one pretty much speaks for themselves. You know, most elderly patients take at least five chronic medications. And then some patients even have something called hyperpolypharmacy, which I didn't know about until I read this paper. Um, that means they take 10 or more chronic medications. And I would argue probably most of these patients are in the hyperpolypharmacy, or if we had a hyper hyperpolypharmacy, I think that's where they'd fall into. <laughs> right. So just, you know, watch out for drug-drug interactions and even accidental overdoses. Like you, it wouldn't be hard to imagine a patient with a little bit of cognitive decline who's accidentally taking their beta blocker wrong and comes in with an overdose. Um, we, we give these patients a lot of medications and we have to be careful. For disability, that's the inability to care for yourself. Uh, so there's many aspects of conventional ACS care that can lead to temporary immobility, uh, delirium, and loss of independence, right? They get a cath, they end up in the cardiac ICU for a couple of days, they're flat on their back, they're not moving around that can lead to some delirium that can lead to some uh, immorbidity. And, you know, these patients go home in a much worse state than they came in, unfortunately, because they can't care for themselves. And then finally, sensory loss. Um, you know, I, I don't think it's a big stretch to think that, you know, older people don't see as well as they used to or hear as well as they used to. There's some macular degeneration. There's some aging to the ears. They just can't really hear you. And especially if they come into the ER and they forgot their hearing aids, like we've all seen that medical student, you know, screaming at the little old man in the corner and the guy's just smiling at him because he can't hear a word he's saying, you know, it can be challenging to get an HMP on these patients. Yeah, that's a great review. So there really are so many other things to think about when these patients present to the emergency department, aside from just the EKG and are they having chest pain and what's their troponin? So just to recap that again, multimorbidity, frailty, cognitive decline, delirium, polypharmacy, and I love the hyperpolypharmacy. Uh, that's a term I haven't heard before, but it is probably most common. Disability and sensory loss. And we'll put the quick recaps of all of those in the show notes. That polypharmacy thing, you know, I, it it brought back a lot of flashbacks. Once again, I remember taking care of a patient who brought the typical brown bag of medications in. I love it when the patients actually bring their medicines rather than, oh, I'm on three small little white pills and one square pill and this and that. This patient actually right. brought a bag of 26 different medications that she was on. And unbelievably, she was compliant with every single one of them. And wow. As, as we looked at these medications, we discovered that she was on one dose of a medicine called metoprolol and another dose of a medicine called Lopressor. Of course, she didn't realize it was the same medication. So she was on two different doses of the same medicine. Same thing with diltiazem and cardizem. So she's on two different doses of the same beta blocker, two different doses of the same calcium channel blocker, and so on. And there's no wonder why she ended up feeling so, so terrible. So yeah, wow. these are all really important issues to take into account when we take care of these patients. All right, moving forward, what special considerations should we know about the clinical history and exam in elderly patients that are presenting with acute coronary syndrome? Well, you know, they're certainly not going to make it easy for you. This is not going to be your straightforward, oh, you have chest pain, you're a 22-year-old kid, and it hurts because you did too many push-ups. There's going to be a lot of confounders here. So think back to those uh, geriatric syndromes for a minute. You're going to have a patient who probably has multiple medical conditions, is on multiple different medications, uh, and everything's going to kind of cloud this picture. They may be a little less specific. They may not remember when the pain started. They may not remember what it felt like. They may not even remember that they had pain. And remember, ACS in older patients is more likely to manifest as things that are considered non-ischemic than in younger patients. You know, they can come in with syncope. They can come in with shortness of breath. They can have sudden confusion. And it turns out it's some form of ACS. It's a very kind of tough history to distill down to the important parts. You know, there was a study in 2018 called the Silver AMI trial. 
uh, and it looked at patients 75 years and older having a heart attack. And 44% of patients did not report chest pain as their primary symptom. Like that's almost half. That, you know, that should just be illegal. It's certainly going to be challenging to get the, a proper history for them. Right. And just to make it harder for you, you know, from this trial, 17% of those patients had some degree of cognitive impairment which would make it even harder to get a history from. So don't be surprised if you need collateral information on these patients. Uh, these are the ones where you may have to call the family. You may have to call the nursing home. You may have to talk to whoever takes care of them just to get a sense of what actually sent them in. And if it's in the middle of the night, you know, you may end up kind of boarding that patient until the morning until the person's able to get back in touch with you. But you just got to be careful. These patients can be tricky. The exam is going to be tough too. The authors recommend uh, a very focused cardiac exam. And uh, shockingly, from the Journal of Circulation, they recommend a cardiac exam. I didn't see that coming. But they recommend you listen especially hard for aortic stenosis because this can be a confounder for ACS. These patients can have you know, syncope with exertion. They can have chest pain. They can have a bunch of things. And it turns out it's just aortic stenosis preventing blood getting out of the heart. Uh, and that's why these patients are passing out or that's why they're having this anginal-like pain. Um, in the ER, I would argue it's going to be a little challenging to hear a murmur, just given so many things that are going on. We're not a quiet doctor's office where you can take a good listen. Although, you know, if it's an 85-year-old with a pretty loud AS murmur, I think, you know, I have a hearing loss, but even I could probably hear that one. And then finally, I just want to touch on their EKGs for a second. I, I've said it before, I'm a big fan of EKGs. Uh, about 70% of older adults will have some form of abnormality on their baseline EKG. So you can expect to see LVH, you can expect to see bundle branch blocks right and left. Uh, you can expect AFib, you can expect pace rhythms, you know, for these patients, comparison with an old EKG is essential. Hopefully they've been to your facility before they have a copy with them. They have something where they can say, you know, this is my old EKG. Is there any change to it? Because change is going to be what's going to help tip the scales here. You, you may not know, you know, oh, they always have that pattern. Maybe they had an MI in the past and they have a left ventricular aneurysm and there's always some degree of ST segment elevation on their EKG. Like the ability to compare it to an old EKG is crucial for these patients. Those are really, really great points, and especially about looking for the old EKG. It's just so important to do that. And fortunately, it's gotten a lot easier with the modern-day electronic health records and computer systems, but there's still a lot of hospitals that can't do that. And I, I always used to think that every elderly patient ought to carry a laminated card in their wallet with a copy of their old EKG. We, we actually thought about doing that at one point, but never actually got around to it. Uh, yeah, that's that so helpful. <laughs> yeah, it, it is just so important to do that. Um, is there anything special that we need to know about biomarker testing in the elder? We've kind of covered history, physical, a little bit. What about biomarker testing? Is there any difference there? Well, a little bit. You know, with the addition of this high sensitivity troponin, it provides an important diagnostic sensitivity for the presence of ACS in older adults. But that also comes at the expense of reduced specificity, especially in patients with CKD. And we kind of talked about how the kidneys and the heart are linked. Like this just kind of goes to show it again. For these patients, you're looking more at a trend of the troponin. Some may have a baseline elevation, 100, 150, maybe even 200. And that's just where they live. Um, hopefully you're able to have some old records that you can look back and see if that's just where they are or if this is a new bump for them. Um, the authors here recommend trending the troponins and look for, uh, you know, the rate. Is it rising? How much is it rising by? Or is it pretty much staying flat or even dropping? With these older patients, we can see chronically elevated troponins. Uh, and that can be due to structural changes to the left ventricle. It can be due to kidney problems. It can be due to heart failure. There, there's a bunch of different medical problems going on that our younger patients may not have to explain this bump in troponin. It's not always the heart, but it's not always not the heart. It's kind of hard to, to terse that out a little bit. The highly sensitive troponin 
<laughs> kind of giveth and taketh away, right? It's it's definitely more sensitive, but there's just such poor specificity in many conditions. And I, I think when you were talking about pathophys earlier, my troponin was bumping a little bit. So that's just how, <laughs> how poorly specific some of these troponins can be, but especially in the elderly and especially, especially when they've got kidney problems. Well, next they talk about pharmacotherapy. So now we're getting into the actual treatment with medications for elderly that are having ACS. What do we need to know about medical treatments in the elderly with ACS? Well, you know, as we get older, pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics uh, changes, you know, within our body. Older patients have reduced kidney function, just like we talked about. They have decreased hepatic blood flow, decreased muscle mass, increased body fat, and all of these things affect absorption, distribution, metabolism, and elimination of medications. You know, specifically for ACS, um, all of these meds kind of play into the other meds that are already taken. Uh, they may already be on a statin, they may be on a daily aspirin, they may be on a whole bunch of different medications, and you have to kind of figure out what meds you're going to give them and how do they interact with the other ones. If you're going to give them a super aspirin, the authors here recommend clopidogrel as the super aspirin of choice because it carries the lowest bleeding risk of these new super aspirins. But these patients bleed easily. They may already be on a blood thinner. There's a lot to think about here and you got to be careful because they have a lot of meds they're taking and you're you're not giving you know low side effect medications here. Important points. Is there anything special we need to know now about invasive therapy in the elderly? Well, you know, for you and I, not really. Um, for the interventional cardiologist, oh my goodness, there's like probably a whole textbook on caths for elderly patients. But for those of us in the trenches of the ER, you know, you still activate the cath lab for any patient coming into the ER with a STEMI. Remember, these patients will likely have an abnormal EKG, so it may be difficult to diagnose the STEMI. But once you do, get that patient to a cath lab as soon as possible. That being said, there is something I do want to mention quickly, and that's that your goals of care may not line up with the patient's goals of care. You know, I know personally, I've had an elderly patient uh, in front of me who had an obvious STEMI, and I explained to her everything that was going on. And I said, you know, ma'am, we have to get you to the cath lab as soon as possible. And she looked at me and she said, no, she said, I'm, I'm completely unwilling to do that. I, I just want to go home and spend what time I have left with my family. I am not interested in a cath. I don't want any invasive procedures. I have lived a very long life. I've had a happy life. I just want to go home and spend what time I have left with my family. And she and I had an honest discussion about, you know, everything I was worried about and how there are a lot of bad things that happen when you have a heart attack, especially if you don't treat it. And she was aware of them. She was, you know, she was very with it. She could explain to me all the risks. And she said, I'm not doing it. And her family was supportive. And she went home. She, you know, she said, I'm I'm not interested in a cath. I don't want any kind of lytics. I don't want anything. I just want to go home. And And off she went. Important point to keep in mind as well that we often don't really think about because we're often in such a rush to diagnose and treat these patients, get them up to the cath lab as quickly as possible without even talking to the patient about what their goals of, of treatment are. So, well, Lloyd, that, that was a really great discussion of a fairly lengthy and nitty gritty paper. You made it a whole lot easier. Are there any additional comments that you want to leave with the listeners uh, as we sign off? Uh, well, you know, Amal, thanks so much for having me. You know, it's always a pleasure to be here with you and, and have a chance to to talk to everybody as they're driving into work. Um, I, you know, a couple take-home points for me are, are that elderly patients can be some of the most tricky patients we have to deal with. Um, they give an unreliable history. Their exam's pretty complex. It's full of confounders. Uh, and they have some pretty unexpected pathology come out of nowhere. You know, I think we've all had, oh, a surprise trope bump or, wow, look at that CT. Who saw that coming? Especially with these elderly patients because they're just brewing things for so long. They can be a little frustrating at times, but, you know, these can be some of the most amazing patients we take care of. 
Uh, I was in the military for eight years. I had the privilege of taking care of some World War II veterans uh, and just hearing stories from them about how life had changed. It was eye-opening, uh, especially when I became a staff and I didn't have that, you know, that time pressure of residency to see as many patients as possible. You could spend a moment talking to them and just hearing about their life for a little bit. You know, these patients will really teach you something every time they come in. For me, I, I mentioned it briefly, you know, both of my grandmothers have pretty severe dementia. Um, and every time I have a patient come in, either from an Alzheimer's home or even with dementia, I try to take a minute and just, you know, slow everything down, sit down next to the patient, explain what's going on, uh, and try to make their journey through my emergency room as easy as I can for them, because I know how confused they are. And, you know, I do it one, because I think it's the right thing for the patient. But two, I live in New Jersey, and my grandparents are in other states. And I hope that when they go to the emergency room, whoever takes care of them, uh, takes a step back and realizes this, that this is just like a pretty great person who's just very lost and confused right now and needs a little extra time. And they're able to take that time. So I'm hoping to kind of pay it forward a little bit and just take a moment and recognize that these people are just confused and they need a little extra coaching and a little extra help. But if you take a moment, you know, the, the interactions can be pretty rewarding. Lloyd Tannenbaum, thanks once again so much for your time and definitely look forward to discussing some emergency cardiology with you in the near future again. So please do stay in touch. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Amal. All right. Well, next up on EMCast, we're going to spend some time talking about an article that was published very recently in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine on a topic that I don't think we've really addressed before, and that has to do with crush injuries. The authors of this article were Britt Long, Steve Liang, and Michael Gottlieb, and they've written a whole bunch of articles on what they refer to as low prevalence, but high risk entities. And that certainly is the case for crush injuries, but this is a bread and butter topic, even if it is a relatively low prevalence type of condition. And once again, joining me to discuss this article is one of my colleagues, Dr. Rob Flint, who is our uh, trauma expert. Um, Rob, once again, welcome back to the EM cast. Thanks, Amal, it's great to be back. And I'm really excited to go through this article. I think it has some really interesting learning points. Yeah, so like I said, crush injuries is something that uh, since we started doing EMCast all the way back in 2007, I don't think we've ever addressed this, but it is definitely something that I think we need to know about. Uh, tr true crush injuries are not necessarily that common, but when they occur, they tend to happen in devastating circumstances like earthquakes or bombings or building collapses, natural disasters, and sometimes in work-related circumstances. Uh, for example, it, it was just several months ago, actually, we had a patient come in from a construction site and a, a large metal beam had fallen off a truck and pinned him against the wall. It was kind of a bizarre accident, but he got brought into the emergency department and he had significant uh, thoracic and rib fractures and leg injuries as well. And he ended up being treated for a crush injury because it, it took them at least half an hour to kind of extricate him out from under this beam. So this is definitely something that we need to be prepared to deal with, even from things as uh, relatively mundane as construction sites, um, and also whether we're at a trauma center or not, because these major crush injuries are not always really obvious when the paramedics pick them up. So anyway, let's let's go ahead and start with some definitions. Rob, what exactly are we talking about when we say or use the term crush injuries? So crush injuries occur when any part of the body experiences compression and direct physical trauma. They can be brief but it's significant force, or it can be sustained force like the construction worker you mentioned. Two definitions the article gave us, and I really think are good, is crush injury describes the area of the body with sustained physical trauma, and crush syndrome deals with physiologic consequences to the rest of the body that experiences because of the crush injury. 
thinking about these crush injuries as two different categories is really going to help us not miss anything in our patient that we don't want to miss, including physiologic issues and physical injury issues. All right. Well, some of our listeners in the U.S. and internationally may be involved in scene response. It's not something that I do, but some of our colleagues do go out to the scene of mass casualty issues or disasters or, again, construction sites, whatever, where an injury may happen. If you are one of those physicians who does scene response and you go out to the accident site where there's a crush injury, what are some considerations that you need to keep in mind in the response at the scene? I do think it's good to know what our pre-hospital colleagues and our patients are experiencing in these often complex situations. So for those that are out on the scene, scene safety is paramount as there's the risk of secondary collapse, electrical and fire hazards, as well as other hazards like sharp objects or gases that accumulate. Once we're able to access the patient, establishing an IV to administer large amounts of fluid is important to minimize crush syndrome physiology. Patients are at risk for acute kidney injury, secondary to dehydration and rhabdomyolysis. We also have to be cognizant of pain management because these crush injuries are incredibly painful. If you're not able to establish an IV due to positioning or just the patient location, don't forget about IOs. They can be incredibly useful in these patients to administer the fluids or the pain medication. And then it's also important to avoid secondary injury when the patient's being extracted. Therefore, we need to splint the patient and carefully coordinate movement with the whole team member that are involved with this. Unfortunately, sometimes tough decisions have to be made about field amputations if a limb is so entangled that the only way to rescue the patient is to perform an amputation. These pre-hospital teams that have to make these decisions and perform the task are usually specially trained for on-scene management of these type of injuries. It's also really important to know that most fatalities and crush injuries occur either immediately after the injury or right after the patient has been extricated. The release of all these cellular toxins into the circulation can cause fatal arrhythmias for the recently extricated patient. So hopefully with aggressive fluid resuscitation prior to extrication, we can help minimize this risk. Well, those are some really great pearls. All right, for most of us, we're going to see these patients at the hospital rather than on scene. So Rob, when these patients arrive, how should our evaluation and management proceed? So if we know a crush injury patient's coming, we should get prepared just like we would for every other major trauma. It's an important first step to address the CABCs. And what I mean by this is address obvious hemorrhage with direct pressure or tourniquets if necessary, assess the airway, and assess breathing, including decompressing suspected pneumothoraces, and then move on to evaluate the patient for intra-abdominal injuries with a FAST exam, and ideally, if we can, get an upright chest X-ray to help evaluate for pneumothoraces and rib injuries. Hypotension in these patients can be from hemorrhage or profound dehydration or from acidemia. Our job is to start figuring that out very quickly after the patient arrives. All right. Well, let's now get into the nitty-gritty of the management, specifically of crush injuries. Uh, again, assuming that we've already addressed the ABCs and not identified an injury that needs to go immediately to the OR uh, and intubation if necessary, we've got the ABCs down, but now we're just going to focus on dealing with the crush injury. How do we proceed with that? Let's address crush injury syndrome physiology first. Because of the muscle injury involved here, there's a massive amount of potassium, myoglobin, and other intercellular components released into the blood. We need to be liberal with fluid administration. If we need to, we can use bicarbonate-containing solutions to help with the acidemia as well as to help with uh, decrease the acute kidney injury. 
we're going to need to send off basic labs. We're going to need to get an EKG to look for signs of hyperkalemia and send a venous gas to give us an idea about our acid-base status of the patient on arrival. And we're probably going to have to do serial labs over the course of the next several hours as we make adjustments to the crush syndrome physiology. We're going to carefully measure urine output, usually with a Foley catheter in place. This is really important so we can assess ongoing acute kidney injury. Our ideal output would be over 50 mLs per hour. We're going to treat the hyperkalemia with our usual regimen of insulin, glucose, bicarb, albuterol, and know that many of these patients are going to go on to get emergent dialysis. So if we move from crush syndrome physiology to crush injuries or the physical trauma that's associated, we need to assess the wounds and we need to assess compartments. Because of the significant forces involved, fractures and compartment syndrome are very common. We should x-ray anything we think may be fractured, and we need to assess compartments by evaluating for pulses, neurovascular status, softness, and this needs to be an ongoing, continuous reevaluation process. We need to be constantly looking at these patients to see if they're developing a compartment syndrome. You can also measure compartment pressures as well. This may be helpful to you. If the compartment syndrome is either developing or occurring, fasciotomy is going to be limb and life-saving. However, prophylactic fasciotomy is not indicated and actually has been shown to do a little bit worse in the outcomes. So it's really having that suspicion of a compartment syndrome and then going to fasciotomy. Keep in mind, many of these crush injury patients are going to have mangled limbs or large open contaminated wounds. IV antibiotic prophylaxis is a must given the environment that most of these crush injuries occur in, a tetanus booster for anyone who hasn't had one in the last five years. And because most of these wounds are complex and contaminated, they're going to require going to the operating room for debridement. So keep them covered with moist gauze, immobilize any fractures for comfort and to prevent further injury. In my opinion, if a tourniquet is in place, time is obviously critical for limb salvage. We should get our surgical colleagues involved, and that patient should go to the operating room before we take down the tourniquet due to the high risk of hemorrhage and that cellular washout that we talked about earlier. And remember, pain control is a mainstay of this treatment as well. So be liberal with that and consider non-dissociative doses of ketamine in these patients as an adjunct. I love the recommendation for ketamine. It's, it's just become so useful in so many different conditions for really a lot of different patients, and especially for these trauma patients who might be suffering from some hypotension. So it's a nice pearl to throw in there. Uh, in the article, there's two really nice tables that the authors added. There's uh, table four, which kind of summarizes the general approach. And also there's table five, which lists an assortment of different complications from crush injury. And pretty much crush injury can affect every different system, cardiovascular, GI, hematologic, infectious, metabolic, neuro, pulmonary, psychiatric. There's so many different systems that can be affected from crush injury that we really need to, to stay on top of that you've kind of alluded to. That was a really helpful discussion. And, and again, I've oftentimes said that emergency medicine is all about learning about and being prepared for things that we hope we never see. And these crush injuries, especially coming from building collapses or mass casualty type of accidents, these are things that we hope we never see, but a lot of us will see those in our career. That's what we need to be prepared for. And I think this article is very helpful in terms of prepping for that. Rob, that was really great. Any final points you want to leave the listeners with? I'd say these patients are complex. Systematically evaluate them for both the physical injury as well as the physiologic injury we discussed. 
Fluids, hemorrhage control, wound decontamination, and pain management are the mainstays of treatment for these patients. Awesome pearls. Rob, thanks so much once again for covering a really, really bread and butter trauma topic. And hopefully we'll we'll get together again and talk about some more good trauma topics in the near future. Sounds good. I appreciate it, Donald. Thanks. All right. Well, next up on EMCast, we're going to spend some time talking about a really, really common topic in the emergency department or a common presentation or a common finding in the emergency department. And that has to do with hypertension. And the reason we're going to talk about this is because there happened to be two recent articles that I came across focused on hypertension. One of them was published in a journal that probably a lot of people don't come across. It's Current Opinion in Cardiology. And this article was by Merrill Stewart, focused on hypertensive crisis, diagnosis, presentation, and treatment. And right around the same time, there was a viewpoint, or it's really more of an editorial, that was published by Flavio Dani Fuchs and colleagues. And that was published in Journal of the American Heart Association. And the title of this article was, Is It Time to Retire the Diagnosis Hypertensive Emergency? And, and that certainly caught my attention. And uh, so I thought, well, let's talk about hypertension. We haven't done that in a while. Joining me to discuss this topic is one of our junior faculty and current faculty development fellow, Dr. Gabriella Miller. Gabriella has been on the EMCast, I think at least once before. Hopefully there'll be a few more times uh, in the, the coming months and year or so. But Gabriella, first of all, welcome back to EMCast. It's great to have you back. Hi, thank you so much for including me in today's discussion. All right. Well, last time Gabriella talked about primary care issues in the emergency department, and hypertension certainly fits within that niche that she's developed. But I, I you know, I, I really love this topic because it's so relevant to what we do in the emergency department. And I truly think a lot of what we do with regards to hypertensive emergency can really just be done with a good history and a physical exam and some common sense. But unfortunately, I, I think people tend to really overdo it. So let's go ahead and jump into this topic. So first of all, Gabriella, can you first just define for us what exactly is a hypertensive crisis, as the article says? Absolutely. So it's sort of the term makes it sound a lot more simple than the definition actually sort of bears out. But the ACC and AHA guidelines from 2017 define a hypertensive crisis as a blood pressure of greater than 180 over 120. And they break down crisis into two subcategories, hypertensive urgency and hypertensive emergency, with emergency indicating signs of end organ damage. And that's like your aortic dissection, clampsia, press, something pretty obvious. And those patients require prompt blood pressure management in the acute setting. Urgency is a much less clearly defined term where there's this, again, markedly elevated blood pressure, but no overt signs of end organ damage. And so those patients require long-term changes in medication. And that term makes is like essentially less relevant to the acute care setting. It does get a little bit muddled because theoretically you could have a condition that is like falls under the umbrella of hypertensive emergency, such as something like a stroke. But you can have blood pressure readings that actually fall below the defined cutoff of 180 over to 120. It really isn't clear what we should do with that. So the European Society of Cardiology in 2019 tried to reconcile that and they removed a hard and fast blood pressure threshold. But they further complicated it. They added this subcategory called malignant hypertension, which is under the umbrella of hypertensive emergency. 
And that's specifically related to some pathophysiology. So that includes uh, conditions that involve fibrinoid necrosis of the kidney, retina, and brain. And they chunked out stroke from under the umbrella of hypertensive emergency, which kind of makes sense because permissive hypertension is actually a frequent recommendation in ischemic stroke management for those who aren't given like TPA or recommended for an embolectomy. So the typical recommendation of rapid blood pressure management didn't really apply to it. Um, so there's some controversy as to whether stroke should be considered under the umbrella of the of hypertensive emergency. The Americans say yes, the Europeans say maybe not so much. But that's kind of the, the general gist of a hypertensive crisis as broken down into hypertensive emergency and urgency. Got it. Got it. You know, I've always included stroke as one of the hypertensive emergencies when I'm teaching this, but you're absolutely right. There, there definitely is or, or are new guidelines recommending more of a permissive hypertension with these patients. So it blurs the distinction. But at least one of the things that we've been taught, which I think seems to be fairly clear, has been to distinguish urgency from emergency. And we've largely thrown out the term urgency and really have been taught to just focus on emergencies. But again, the authors blurred the distinction a little bit here. Can you discuss that? I think it's difficult because um, there are certainly cases where we are presented with overt signs of end organ damage. Again, the aortic dissection, the seizing eclamptic patients, and patients fit clearly into a box of a hypertensive emergency. But with the article, and I think sort of generally in the societies that comment on this, don't provide much guidance on is how to navigate those borderline patients. What about the patient with elevated blood pressure and a headache, but no focal neurologic deficits? How on earth are we supposed to tell if there's end organ damage if their physical exam appears to be normal aside from their markedly elevated blood pressure? Do we consider this a hypertensive urgency and adjust home blood pressure meds? Or are we obligated to obtain head imaging and rapidly decrease blood pressure in the inpatient setting? It's still very much a gray area, and I think uh, something that we need to sort of look forward to how to uh, guide ourselves in, in the future. But regrettably, the article doesn't really help help us here. <laughs> so, well, let me ask you to kind of combine what you've read and, and also what you've learned in, in your practice, and we'll kind of get to the, the real crux of what everyone wants to know. Who are the patients that we actually need to worry about? Yeah, of course. So hypertension can really wreak havoc on any organ system. So we need to have a broad perspective and sort of be checking off the boxes of justification of why we do or do not think a patient who has marked hypertension has signs of end organ damage as evidenced by their history and physical exam. So it can certainly cause brain failure in the form of ischemic or hemorrhagic stroke, as well as press. It can cause significant ocular disease, such as malignant hypertensive retinopathy, vitreous hemorrhage, or CRAL. It can certainly contribute to susceptibility for vascular diseases, such as aortic dissection, preeclampsia, and eclampsia. And in terms of cardiac dysfunction, hypertension can lead to acute decompensation of CHF and associated pulmonary edema, as well as to ACS. Finally, it can also lead to renal failure. So we do have to have a broad sort of spectrum of illness that we need to be considering as it relates to hypertension and kind of be checking through all the major organ systems to determine which patients with marked hypertension we need to be most concerned about. So if a patient presents with severe hypertension, what do you recommend as the workup that we should be doing for these patients? 
Our evaluation, just like with most patients, it's really not a one-size-fits-all type of deal. It, it needs to hinge on the patient's specific history and physical exam. And I should preface by saying that there is good evidence to suggest that patients with asymptomatic hypertension don't benefit from shotgun screening for signs of end organ damage. And there's a paucity of evidence to suggest that hypertensive urgencies or elevated blood pressure reading without signs of end organ damage is at all associated with worse outcomes than uncontrolled blood pressure in the ambulatory setting. So just because we're in the emergency department doesn't need mean we necessarily need to have our, our hackles up every time somebody comes in with high blood pressure. It just depends on the patient's risk factors, their follow-up mechanisms. Um, you can often counsel folks who are, have asymptomatic hypertension on lifestyle modification and have a shared decision-making conversation regarding whether to initiate an antihypertensive in, in conjunction with establishing outpatient follow-up. But it's really not our obligation to uh, acutely lower blood pressure in the emergency department unless there is like a missed home medication or you're, you've agreed with the patient to start a new medication as part of a long-term follow-up plan. But if we pivot and start talking about the chief complaints that are most concerning for hypertensive emergency, obtaining an EKG interponin and considering evaluation for aortic dissection uh, in patients with chest pain and high blood pressure is certainly reasonable. In patients with dyspnea, evaluating cardiac function and checking for pulmonary edema with a bedside pocus uh, to evaluate for a CHF exacerbation, that's also reasonable. Adjuncts to that evaluation include a chest X-ray and a pro-BNP. Pro Obtaining a serum creatinine as well as a urine dipstick to check for hematuria and proteinuria is especially helpful for patients who are concerned about progressive renal dysfunction in the setting of high blood pressure. And of course, if somebody comes in with focal neurologic deficits or ocular complaints, obtaining head imaging per institutional protocol for stroke evaluation and doing a thorough eye exam is important. Presenting symptoms of PRESS or procedural reversible encephalopathy syndrome may overlap with presenting symptoms of stroke and eye disease associated with hypertension. These patients, however, do tend to have objective visual deficits rather than just like, doc, my, my vision's blurry, and uh, this added element of confusion. And although you may be tempted to evaluate with just a head CT for your PRESS patients, the test of choice is really an MRI. So if your clinical suspicion is high, you should be holding a patient until that test is, is um, obtained. The Stewart article outlined um, something that I hadn't heard about before. It's called serum corin, and corin is a biomarker that theoretically could help predict end organ damage and therefore distinguish perhaps between urgency and emergency in patients with similar blood pressures. This is, however, definitely a nonspecific biomarker. It also doesn't seem to be like readily available on most commercial lab assays that we have in hospitals, but perhaps someday in our patients with headache and high blood pressure, we'll be able to discharge them if they have an appropriate corn level to suggest, suggest absence of end organ damage. Sorry for that long-winded answer, but these patients definitely, they have fallen into a broad spectrum of disease. And so it's, it's hard to sort of sum it up in just a few sentences. No, that was great. You know, I saw that serum corin level and honestly, I, I've never heard of that before, but uh, you know, we'll, we'll see, we'll see what happens with this corin level. Now let's go into some management issues. What exactly should we do for these patients to manage their hypertensive crises or emergencies? And maybe we can just kind of take it step-by-step in terms of what you recommend for each of the different specific entities. Yeah, definitely. Um, sort of similarly to the different subcategories of disease that may fall under the umbrella of hypertensive urgency, there are also 
not necessarily overlapping, but sometimes overlapping subcategories of blood pressure management goals, depending on the organ system involved. So the article outlines, you know, blood pressure parameters for an adrenergic crisis, which I think is a fairly rare diagnosis, but should be considered, or preeclampsia and eclampsia as a blood pressure reduction recommendation of a systolic less than 140 within the first hour. Phreatic dissection, that parameter is lower with a systolic uh, blood pressure at 120 or lower. For all other disease states, uh, systolic blood pressure should be reduced 25% within the first hour and then down to less than 160 over 100 within the next two to six hours. Finally, they should those patients should be within normal range blood pressures within 24 to 48 hours of their initial presentation. And the point of this slow blood pressure reduction for the majority of hypertensive emergencies is to prevent hyperperfusion events in patients who are chronically adjusted to higher blood pressures. So theoretically, if you reduce it slower, the body will be able to adapt. Although it's conceptually kind of hard to difficult, but it's, it's sort of difficult to imagine that if a patient has had markedly elevated blood pressure, sometimes for years, that they'd be able to adjust to lower range blood pressures in just 48 hours. Also, as I mentioned earlier when discussing the European guidelines, uh, ischemic stroke is kind of an exception to the general rule. If patients aren't offered intervention like a mechanical thrombectomy or thrombolytics, uh, the recommendation is that the patient's blood pressure should be permissively hypertensive up to 220 over 120. And that's to promote perfusion of the penumbra, which I don't think I could say five times fast. If an intervention is offered, blood pressure should be reduced to 180 over 105. And in terms of medications that are recommended, the general consensus is that medications should be administered IV, have a fast onset of action, and be rapidly titratable. And when we compare sort of the overall winner for all comers that are need blood pressure management um, for a hypertensive emergency, the true winner is clovidipine. The main downside of clovidipine administration is cost. It's, you know, no, there is no generic uh, clovidipine. It's under patent for at least uh, a little less than another decade. And there is also potential for reflex tachycardia. Many hospitals, because of the cost, don't have it on formulary. So nicardipine is the second best, with a close third being labetalol. I do want to quickly sort of touch on some notes that the authors made regarding nitroglycerin. So nitroglycerin is certainly still recommended as an adjunct of treatment of ACS, in particular in patients with marked hypertension. Um, although traditionally it's used for both preload and afterload uh, reduction in flash pulmonary edema, the authors also cited this 2014 Pronto pilot study by Peacock et al. that suggests that dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers may be more effective at reducing blood pressure and dyspnea than nitroglycerin. I was actually surprised to, to hear that because I had been using nitroglycerin as part of my practice for both preload and afterload reduction flash pulmonary edema. And so I tried to sort of look to see if there's been a tremendous amount of evidence, you know, post pronto trial, and it looks like, you know, sort of the jury's still out. So although they did make that comment about calcium channel blocker use, it's just something to consider as an option. But I think the mainstay that most people are still using is nitroglycerin. 
And then finally, the authors also uh, discussed Arapidil, which I had never heard of. It's apparently a sympathetic medication, but it's not been approved in the U.S. And I really don't have any experience with this medication. Um, so I'm just going to kind of wait to hear some more information on that going forward. That sounds fantastic. And switching over to the the other article, the Journal of American Heart Association article or editorial, or what they called commentary, the authors talk about the concept of getting rid of the term hypertensive emergency or retiring it. And again, I, I've never heard that argument brought up. Can you discuss briefly what their arguments are for why we should get rid of that term also? Yeah, absolutely. This this article uh, honestly like, broke my brain a little bit. The authors sort of seek to deconstruct the traditional paradigm that conditions that have been historically under the umbrella of hypertensive emergency are perhaps not actually directly caused by markedly elevated blood pressure. Instead, they suggest that markedly elevated blood pressure may just be a symptom of some of these conditions. Uh, so for example, rather than seeing elevated blood pressure as a uh, cause of ischemic stroke, we would actually see it as a symptom of ischemic stroke. Perhaps it's the body's way of compensating for that ischemic insult. They also mentioned that, you know, I think reasonably so that we've seen in our patients that many of these conditions that fall under the umbrella of hypertensive emergency are painful and they're stressful. We should expect that blood pressure is markedly elevated because of these factors. Uh, treating pain and providing reassurance may be honestly more useful and more patient-centered than loading somebody up with labetalol to treat a number. So they comment additionally on the diagnostic and treatment approaches for these conditions um, that, and they basically sort of, as I've already discussed, um, typically, uh, you know, that these hypertensive emergencies, the diagnostics and the treatment approach, they're highly variable. And although blood pressure management is involved, it's usually like not like a curative intervention. So for example, uh, blood pressure management for a type A aortic dissection and eclampsia are important, but a surgical procedure to fix the dissection or delivery of the pregnancy isn't a curative intervention. So although blood pressure management may be a unifying feature of these conditions, the authors argue that many of these conditions are too distinct to be bundled together. And I kind of get where they're coming from, but it's going to require a huge sort of shift in our mindset because this is the paradigm that we have been taught throughout our medical careers and something that is expected from us, uh, you know, to uh, expected for us to evaluate in the emergency department and therefore expected by our consultants and our colleagues and other departments to be thinking about. So I, I think it was, it was certainly a provocative and an interesting piece to read. And I think that they made some good points in particular about managing uh, discomfort and sort of treating each of these disease entities as unique. Yeah, it was an interesting discussion, and it certainly does make sense. Parts of it make sense, but it will be a, a huge change for sure. So as we wrap things up, are there any final points that you want to leave the listeners with? Sure. To summarize, um, hypertensive crisis is a blanket term used for hypertensive urgency and emergency. Hypertensive urgency is even less clearly defined and seems to have relatively little clinical relevance to outcomes in the acute care setting. If we are concerned about a hypertensive emergency, we ought to tailor diagnostics to the specific organ damage that matches the patient's presentation. Once pain and anxiety are optimized, consider blood pressure goals in addition to the appropriate interventions for the patient's specific condition, because the blood pressure 
titration management may not be the curative element for your patient's condition. But, and also it is worth remembering that for the majority of patients with hypertensive emergencies, clopidopine or another uh, calcium channel blocker such as nicardipine is probably the drug of choice. All right, Dr. Gabriella Miller, outstanding discussion. Thank you so much for your time and taking us through these two articles. And uh, definitely look forward to getting you back for some more EMCast in the near future. Sounds good. Thanks again. All right. Next up on EMCast, we're going to spend some time talking about some more behavioral emergencies. Well, it's no secret that boarding has become a really huge national problem and probably worse than ever before, not only locally, but around the country, maybe even around the world. And one group of patients that's at particularly high risk for getting stuck boarding is the patient with an emergent psychiatric issue who requires admission. There's always been boarding issues with psychiatric patients, but even worse now, uh, largely because there's just not enough psychiatric beds in most states around the country, certainly in Maryland. And we all have post-COVID shortages of staffing and that's made things even worse. Well, joining me to discuss this issue and maybe offer some solutions, I don't know, we'll keep our fingers crossed, is Dr. Afra Ali. Afra did a recent lecture on this topic at the recently completed Mediterranean Emergency Medicine Conference, which was in Rhodes, Greece. And so uh, it, it was a really great talk. And, and so I wanted to have her discuss some of the key points here on EMCast. So Afra, welcome back to EMCast. It's great to have you again. Thank you so much. Hi, everyone. Well, uh, just to get things started, first of all, can you just give us a bit of background and tell us how boarding formally is defined and also how big of a problem is this with psychiatric patients? So as per Joint Commission, boarding is defined as patients being held in the emergency department or another location after the decision to admit or transfer has been made. Um, the last survey or statistics that I could find uh, was a survey of 328 ED medical directors in the U.S., and they reported about 79.2% routine psychiatric patient boarding with about 35.1% boarding greater than one patient per day. Got it. Okay. Now, th there's literature that boarding ICU patients in the ED can actually result in worse patient outcomes. And we've talked about that in months and years past on EMCAST. But is there similar literature for psychiatric patients boarding? Or is the whole boarding issue primarily just an inconvenience and doesn't really affect patient care with psychiatric patients? Yes, there is evidence to show that ED boarding of patients with psychiatric complaints can have a marked negative impact, not only on the patients, but also on the clinicians. Now, when we talk about the impact on the psych patients, um, this has noted to have been associated with increased mortality and morbidity, delayed in mental health treatment, and increased uh, risk of agitation, and higher risk of chemical and physical restraints. Now, this can transfer as impact on the clinicians as well, because this increases workplace violence, including verbal and physical attacks, increased stress that can contribute to long-term effects, such as increasing physician burnout and compassion fatigue. Well, those are definitely really important issues that we face every day. What can we do to improve the care of these patients while they are stuck in the emergency department? So there are a couple of key aspects that we can address while they are waiting in the ER. I remember this by using the mnemonic board, 
B stands for boarders. So anyone in the ED that has been there for more than four hours post-admission or pending transfer, you could use this for them. O stands for observation, which means you need to assess if the patient requires a one-is-to-one -one sitter observation to prevent elopement as well as to ensure the safety of the patient. You can also consider an observation unit, such as a short-term unit stay for psych patients. This should be an area that is ideally away from the chaotic ED and that provides the patient with the least amount of triggers. A stands for activities of daily living. As the patient is boarding in the ED, we must cater to their daily personal needs, such as personal hygiene by providing them access to showers, daily change of gowns, necessary toiletries, a regular diet, change to a hospital bed from the ED bed to prevent ulcers, especially in geriatric patients. R stands for reassess. So you need to uh, ensure that they are getting vitals every shift reassessing for any new um, somatic symptoms to ensure that they don't develop any medical complaint, and then reassessing the psych complaint as well. If you have the resources of telepsychiatry, then that can also be used for reassessment. If a patient has a history of alcohol use disorder, you can maintain order for a SIBA protocol. If a patient has history of drug use disorder, you can maintain an order for COWS protocol. If they have a history of smoking, you can offer nicotine patch versus gums. D stands for drugs and disposition. A general drug consideration would be to restart home medication, especially for patients with medical conditions such as diabetes or hypertension. What can happen is the patient will come in initially with a blood glucose of, say, about 200. And in two days, if we haven't given them the medications, they may go into DKA. So it is very essential to keep that in mind. It's also important to confirm medications with the pharmacy or the patient's family to ensure it is correct. And then prescribing medications for simple symptoms, such as if the patient complains of not being able to sleep, you can offer them melatonin. If the patient is anxious, you can offer them anti-anxiolytics. Great pearls. Well, let's get into some more specific pearls, actually. In your lecture, as I recall, you provided some specific pearls for a few different types of patient groups, starting with suicidal patients. What are some of the more specific recommendations for patients that are suicidal and are boarding in the ED? For suicidal patients, they also may have coexisting diagnosis of major depression disorder or anxiety. So reviewing and restarting the medications that the patient was on is helpful. Antidepressants ideally take about four to six weeks to show effects, hence restarting them early can be helpful in the long term. A lot of the times what happens is when the patient is once admitted, we don't think we can change the disposition. But for patients who have moderate suicidal risk and on reassessment, if they do not have a current suicidal plan or suicidal ideation and are willing to accept resources, we can consider discharge with consultation with family and the psychiatrist on call. The essential aspects to consider prior to discharging somebody is their ability to follow up with the psychiatrist, access to supervised medication, documenting uh, that the patient and family would agree to remove access to any means of suicide, such as firearms and locking up medications. There has been a lot of talk about contracting for safety by safety contracts, but this has not shown to be valuable. However, having a safety plan 
is much more helpful. A safety plan is where we talk to the patient about what they can do if they start having suicidal ideations. This may look like having coping strategies or who will they call when they have this thought, such as a friend or a family member who can drive them to the hospital or the crisis line. All right. And what about the agitated patient? What kind of pearls can you give us for managing those patients that are boarding? A key issue that we encounter with agitated patients are when they come in, they're agitated in a severe state of agitation. You go ahead, you give them IM medications most of the time, and then you kind of forget about them and they calm down. And then the behavior starts off again, which goes from like mild to moderate. And then again, they escalate to severe agitation. So this kind of cycle develops. So in order to ensure that the patient does not escalate again to that severe agitation. It's better to have scheduled medications to keep the patient calm rather than sedate the patient, which is helpful in the treatment. Now, this can be attained by offering POA typical antipsychotics such as olanzapine, risperidone, or Haldol. Second-generation atypicals are preferred due to the um, better safety profile. And this also helps in limiting the use of the restraints and seclusion to the least amount of time necessary. Great, great points. Finally, uh, you had some really nice pearls in caring for elderly psychiatric patients, which definitely is a growing population. Can you uh, take us back through some of those points? Yep. So the key features to look out for in elderly patients are all the medications that I just mentioned should always be half the normal dose that you would give for our regular patients. Uh, The major point is to always avoid benzos because that can lead to false polypharmacy, worsening dementia and paradoxical uh, agitation. All right. Great. Well, that was a really nice summary of your, your talk. And um, before we go, are there any final really, really key points that you want to leave the listeners with to be sure to remember? The biggest goal that I would add on to is that boating psych patients should also have ongoing treatment, just similar to your medical or surgical boating patients. We need to ensure that daily activities such as personal hygiene, access to toilet and food are provided to patients and reassessing for somatic symptoms to ensure patients do not develop a new medical pathology. Great points. You know, it's interesting as you're going through this, I'm just thinking about the psych patients I've cared for who are boarding in the emergency department. And it's it's not common that we think about giving them, for example, a change of clothes or, or anything else like that. And it seems like it, it would really be useful to help them just in terms of regaining some level of their activities of daily living by doing some simple things like that. So these are really, really nice things to keep in mind that you've pointed out. And uh, again, I want to thank you for these uh, topics that you've brought up on behavioral health emergencies, because it's not something that we talk enough about in the emergency department, but psychiatric and behavioral health issues are just so common in medicine, in society, and in in the emergency department. And it's, it's one probably one place that we haven't done enough. So appreciate all your teaching in this area. And I look forward to hearing more about this in some future EM casts. Thank you so much. All right, everyone. Well, it is time for our summary. We started things off by talking about ACS in the elderly with Dr. Lloyd Tannenbaum. Just a few reminders here. The elderly, as they describe in this particular paper, they're using the age over 75, but a lot of this can be extrapolated to slightly younger patients and also patients that you think have kind of older physiology. 
uh, they do tend to be disproportionately affected with acute coronary syndrome. They count for about 30 to 40% of all hospitalized patients and the majority of ACS-related death. There's a handful of pathophysiologic occurrences. As we get older, vessels start to become stiffer and less elastic. That leads to hypertension. That will increase oxygen demand, especially when these patients have LVH. Patients have aging kidneys that are less efficient and they develop acute kidney insufficiency and that oftentimes leads to that cardiorenal syndrome. And that's associated with increased risk for ACS and decompensated heart failure and LVH and volume overload and so on. Well, we talked about a few geriatric syndromes. First of all, elderly patients are at higher risk for multimorbidity or comorbidities as we typically refer to it. Increase in frailty, cognitive decline, and also delirium becomes an issue. Polypharmacy is an incredible issue that we all uh, deal with on a regular basis. There's a handful of diagnostic challenges with these patients, right? History, number one, is often very challenging. They have poor memory. Elderly patients, especially I find elderly men, often are more likely to downplay their symptoms. I recall a number of times speaking with elderly men who are saying, yeah, it was nothing, just a little sharp pain. It lasted about two seconds. And then in the corner of my eye, I see the wife who's sitting over there shaking her head. And I look over there and say, ma'am, tell me what really happened. And it's a completely different story. And of course, the patient realizes that we are on to him. Anyway, 44% of elderly patients will not report chest pain. Is that because they don't experience chest pain or they just don't want to report it? Well, probably both. As we get older, we're less likely to experience any type of pain, and ACS is less likely to manifest in the elder population with chest pain. Instead, they oftentimes will present with what we refer to as anginal equivalents. For example, shortness of breath, or unexplained vomiting, or unexplained diaphoresis, and so on. Sometimes, these patients will have altered mental status, and on top of that, if they have cognitive impairment to start with, that's going to throw off your history taking as well. Elderly patients have EKG abnormalities at baseline, and that makes life a lot tougher when we're trying to interpret ACS, LVH, bundle branch block, pacers. Those are all going to make things more difficult. High sensitivity troponins are very often elevated in the elderly at baseline, so you're going to need to get serial troponins when you've got that mild troponin elevation to find out if it's just a baseline elevation or if it is rising. We talked briefly about uh, polypharmacy, but there's other pharmacotherapy issues as well. Elderly patients have a number of different issues that lead to changes in drug absorption, distribution, metabolism, and elimination. So they're at higher risk for not only polypharmacy, but also adverse drug effects and drug interactions. Okay, moving on to our next topic, Dr. Rob Flint talked about crush injuries. And there's not a lot to say here, but things to just be thinking about. Crush injuries and crush syndrome are oftentimes defined simply as brief but significant force and sustained force that occur at accident sites. There's a few things that we need to really stay on top of. Number one, these patients need IV fluids. IV fluids are going to be very important to maintaining kidney health and preventing dehydration and rhabdomyolysis. Dehydration and rhabdo are going to really, really hurt those kidneys and put patients into renal failure. So IV fluids, go heavy on IV fluids to keep those kidneys healthy. Go heavy on analgesics. You don't want to knock the patient out, of course, but you want to give these patients good analgesia. And one of the things that Rob in the article talked about 
was the use of ketamine for these patients. And that might be a very appropriate thing to use while patients are being extricated, but be generous with analgesics. Be wary of secondary injuries that can occur. Splint the patient and carefully coordinate movements of the patient to maintain spinal integrity as you're moving the patient as well. In terms of management, of course, you want to maintain uh, not only spinal alignment, but you're going to follow the basics of emergency medicine, the ABCs of trauma. You want to assess for intra-abdominal injury. The FAST exam should occur fairly early on during the evaluation process. Monitor urine output. The ideal urine output for these patients is 50 cc's per hour. If it starts dropping a lot, you need to increase the fluids and monitor that kidney function. And be on the lookout for hyperkalemia, especially if the patient has been down for a prolonged period of time. And you know how to treat hyperkalemia. We're not going to go into that. Crush injuries put patients at higher risk for really terrible wounds, devitalized tissue, compartment syndrome is all common. Be careful about compartment syndrome in particular. X-ray, anything that might be fractured, that's kind of a no-brainer, but anything that may be fractured is also going to be at high risk for neurovascular injury. So stay on top of the neurovascular status, the color, the pulses, capillary refill, and continuously reassess those factors as well. Be very wary of wound issues. Wounds are not going to kill the patient right now, but they may produce increased morbidity and mortality tomorrow or the next day. Make sure to update their tetanus status. And if there's any complex or contaminated wounds or anything that looks devitalized, they need a surgeon as quickly as possible. Make sure you get your surgical consultants involved early. Well, the next thing we talked about was hypertension. Dr. Gabrielle Miller discussed a couple of articles that had to do with hypertension. The first article was describing the ACCAHA definition for hypertensive crisis, and they just described that as a blood pressure over 180 over 120. Now, I think that's a little bit of a misnomer. Hypertensive crisis is a term that's used somewhat haphazardly, and so I would actually change that and say that a concerning level of hypertension is over 180 over 120, but hypertensive crisis or hypertensive emergencies, that really is going to involve end organ damage. And in fact, the European Society of Cardiology in 2010 already removed a specific threshold for blood pressure from their definition. They really talk a lot more about end organ damage and they talk about fibrinoid necrosis of the retina, the brain, the kidney. So what does that mean? You need to do an eye exam. Yes, you need to keep practicing and get better at that ophthalmologic exam. You need to go do a good neurologic exam. And for the kidney, you want to dip that urine and check a creatinine. What are the end organs that we always worry about when we talk about end organ damage? Well, there's the brain, there's the eyes, there's the vessels, specifically aortic dissection and eclampsia are going to be concerns. And there is the heart. Specifically, we're worried about acutely decompensated heart failure with pulmonary edema, and we're worried about acute coronary syndrome, and then there's the kidney. So again, the brain, the eyes, the vessels, the heart, and the kidneys. And the workup should really be patient-specific. You want to do a good history and physical and figure out which end organs you're worried about based on the history and physical and do the workup targeting those things. And I think a good history and physical really can target which organs you need to wor worry about, except for the kidneys. 
you're not going to know if the patient's having acute end organ damage to the kidneys based on a good history and physical, unless they're already oligarch or aneuric, and that's pretty pretty late in the process. So I always say the workup for hypertensive emergency or concerns for hypertensive emergency should be really good history, really good physical, and then check the kidney function. You can do that with the dip urine, looking for protein and blood, or you can check a creatinine. But everything else, in my opinion, this wasn't in the article, but in my opinion, really should be based on the history and the physical. Don't just shotgun with labs and EKGs, or you're just going to end up with a lot of labs and EKG abnormalities that you're not going to know what to do with. Typical chief complaints for these patients, you, you want to assess them for chest pain and shortness of breath and uh, do a really good neurologic exam. Interestingly, the article talked about this serum corin level. Corin is a biomarker that maybe in the future can help predict true end organ damage. I had never heard of corin before, C-O-R-I-N. I'd never heard of it before until I read this article. And I'm pretty sure that I can't get a stat corin level in my emergency department. But, you know, who knows? Maybe at some point down the road. How do you manage these patients? Generally speaking, we're going to drop their blood pressure by about 20 to 25% in the first hour if they have a true hypertensive emergency. And the article talks about getting their blood pressure back down to normal range slowly, but they actually say that you want to get their them back down to normal range blood pressure in 24 to 48 hours. And the consensus amongst all of us and the people I speak with is that's overzealous. That's overly aggressive. You're not going to get somebody down to 120 over 80 who came in at 240 over 150. You're not going to get them down to normal in 24 to 48 hours. It has to be a slower reduction than that. So that's one part of the article that generally all of us here at EMET Home and EMCast really disagree with. I think it should be more gradual than that. And I've never seen that level of aggression in terms of blood pressure management written in any other article. So just be careful about that. But you want to be gradual in reducing the blood pressure. In terms of managing true hypertensive emergencies, I think that some of these newer calcium channel blockers have really emerged as the drugs of choice. Clavidipine has become very popular and nicardipine, both of these are calcium channel blockers that are nicely titratable. The old standby nitroprusside is really not used too often anymore. But if that's what you have, then I think that's fine. You just have to make sure that you're monitoring the blood pressure very, very carefully. But for the most part, I think clavidipine and nicardipine have emerged as the most popular. And in the article, they talked a little bit about nitroglycerin. And just a reminder, nitroglycerin is not to be used as a primary antihypertensive. Yeah, you can use it for acutely decompensated heart failure patients that are very hypertensive or ACS patients that are very hypertensive. But if their blood pressure is off the chart elevated, nitroglycerin is primarily preload reducing. And so it's not always, not usually going to manage the blood pressure that well. Also, remember that patients develop tachyphylaxis relatively quickly after just a few hours from nitroglycerin. So nitroglycerin should really be considered an adjunct to managing hypertension in those heart patients. But in and of itself, if somebody's blood pressure is through the roof, then you want to probably start with something else and add the nitroglycerin, if necessary, as an adjunct. If it's mild hypertension, then fine. Go ahead with nitroglycerin. But if it's through the roof, you're probably going to need something else. Make sure also, and this was brought up by the editorial, but make sure also that you're managing the patient's pain and stress. 
because sometimes that is the cause of the hypertension. If somebody comes in with a broken ankle and their blood pressure is 250 over 150, well, you know, the blood pressure agent of choice for that patient is probably morphine or something to help with the pain. So consider what the possible underlying causes are for the hypertension. And that's why the editorialists were kind of backing away from the term hypertensive emergency. I think it's still a reasonable term to use but it is very important that we need to consider why is the patient hypertensive? Maybe another condition is causing the hypertension rather than the hypertension causing a certain condition. Last topic was the boarding psychiatric patient. And this is an important topic. We really haven't heard a lot about boarding psychiatric patients. We hear about boarding in general, boarding of critical care patients we know is associated with an increase in morbidity and mortality, but does boarding of psychiatric patients really increase morbidity or mortality? And the answer is yes. There's literature showing that these patients have increased in morbidity and mortality, delayed mental health treatment, increased risk for agitation, higher risk of physical and chemical restraint use, and also for the physicians and the caretakers, it's associated with increased risk of workplace violence, increased stress, and increased burnout and fatigue. So it is important to, to be wary of the fact that boarding of psychiatric patients is associated with adverse outcomes to the patients in addition to the healthcare providers. In terms of ED management, our speaker, Dr. Afra Ali, uh, spoke about this mnemonic board. And I, I think the most important things from this B-O-A-R-D mnemonic, to me at least, are the A-R-D activities is the A. You need to make sure that the patient has access to activities that they normally would be involved in, activities of daily living. You know, make sure your patient has access to a shower whenever possible, and meals, uh, of course. The R is for reassess. Make sure that you are reassessing these vitals and reassessing the patient's CWA or alcohol withdrawal score. Make sure you're addressing substance abuse. So once the patient is planned to be admitted to a psychiatric facility and they're just sitting in the emergency department for who knows how long, you don't start ignoring them because that's when problems happen. And then the D in that mnemonic is drugs and disposition. Make sure whatever daily medications they're supposed to be on are ordered and are being prescribed, especially if the patient has some other type of medical condition. Uh, maybe your psychiatric patient has some type of underlying heart problem. Maybe they're being treated for a PE at the same time. Make sure your patient's being treated for these other conditions as well. So whatever coexisting illnesses they have, make sure that they're getting proper treatment for those issues as well. Schedule those medications. And in terms of agitation medications, make sure that those are scheduled on a regular basis, whether it's oral olanzapine or risperidone or Haldol. Make sure that those are part of the order set. And if you do that, it's much more likely that these pharmacologic agents are going to successfully limit the need for physical restraints on day two or day three or whatever it may be. And finally, in elderly psychiatric patients, you probably want to half the dose of medications and stay away from benzodiazepines because those are associated with increased number of falls, worsening dementia, and also some paradoxical agitation. All right, folks. Well, that does it for the November 2023 issue of EMED Homes EMCast. My thanks to all of our speakers, commentators, and the authors for several really, really great papers. I hope you all stay well, and I look forward to talking to all of you next month. Bye for now.
Hey, thanks for listening to MCAST. And for listening to the end, here's a discount code for you. Use discount code PODCAST for 10% off each year of an annual subscription to emedhome.com.